Welcome to The Grow Show, powered by Steel. On The Grow Show, we share ideas, tips, tactics, and insights to help you grow your landscaping business based on our team's 40 years of experience running a landscaping company and working with other owners and their teams to do the same. New episodes are released weekly on Wednesdays. Filling in for our host, Marty Grunder, this week is Grow Group Vice President, Vince Torchia. I'll let him take it from here. Hi, everybody. Vince Torchia here from The Grow Group, bringing to you another exciting edition of The Grow Show, powered by Steel. This week, I'm excited to share something with you that I've devoted the last few years, few years of my life to. As some of you know, I went back to school and I graduated from Syracuse uh, Law School, which was an exciting thing for me to do. I was happy to be able to do it, but it's something that I care about, something that I'm passionate about. And today, I want to share with you some of the business law basics, some things I've learned through my experience and in law school as ways for owners and their teams to protect themselves as they grow. So as you all know, right, this is not going to be legal advice. I'm not acting as your attorney. I'm not acting as your accountant. I'm not acting as a fiduciary for you, but I've got some things I want to share. But keep in mind as I share some things today that like many things in the law, it depends, right? It depends on the facts. It depends on where you are. It depends on who's involved. It depends on a lot of things. So I'm going to try to give you some specific tactical help today, but just know that your state, your city, your municipality, they're going to treat the law differently in, let's say, Dallas, Texas, and they do San Diego, California, then they do Chicago, Illinois. And oh, by the way, that's generally better for us as operators of companies, right? Would you rather have a decision made that has to apply to all 50 states and you have to operate the same way that you do in Wyoming as you do in Florida? For some things, right, like safety and employment rights, that might make sense. But for Certain other rules, it's better to have local governing laws help you in your company because those laws are closer to you, closer to your community, and better reflect what your community is about. So that's not always a bad thing, that laws are different in different areas. So again, that's a way to start off from a generality. But as a reminder, not knowing the law is not an excuse, right? If something bad happens, you can't say, oh, well, I didn't know that. So not my fault, right? That's it's unfortunately ignorance is not an excuse, something that some people learn the hard way. Some some other people can avoid it, but ignorance is no excuse. And as a reminder, the law is above your culture. Just because your company does things a certain way and always has done things a certain way, it doesn't mean it's legal. It doesn't mean it's wrong, but it doesn't mean it's legal. So keep in keep in mind most legal issues that companies face, they're not problems until they are right? It's not a problem that we don't have a handbook until something happens and we don't have a handbook. It's not a problem if you're paying somebody in cash, if you never get caught, but then you get caught and jeopardize your whole business, right? So things are not a problem until they are. My goal today is to give you some insight into some things that you should be doing to protect yourself. So let's start with contracts, right? Contracts are an important thing that all of us enter into all the time. Right? They're things that we do on a daily basis, whether it's with clients, or whether it's with team members, but contracts are an extremely important aspect of all of our daily lives in business. Right, So there's a couple essential things that you have to know when you're making a contract. Right, In a contract, there has to be an offer. Hey, we're going to offer to cut your grass. We're going to offer to do a spring cleanup. We're going to offer to do a front landscape for you. We're going to offer you a contract to do your commercial maintenance. Right, That contract has to be accepted right, by the person who it was offered to. Now, that acceptance could come over email, it could come over a phone call, it could come with a signed signature, it could also be accepted just by you starting the work, right? If they said, hey, well, this is what we're looking for, this sounds great, can you start Monday, and you start Monday, guess what? They've accepted your contract, right? So 
Is it always better to have a signature? Absolutely, it's always better to have a signature. But just because you don't have a signature or just because, right, you did it over the phone call and it was an oral contract, it doesn't mean that it's not valid, right? So in contracts, there's an offer and an acceptance. Make sure you've got yourself covered on both of those, right? Get the offer out, get the contract out, get the specificity out of what you want and have that acceptance of the client or your customer in a way that you could prove to somebody that they accepted it, right? And oh, by the way, you doing the work may be how you prove it, right? Also, there's got to be legal capacity to enter into contracts, right? So we talk a lot about selling to decision makers, but remember that someone has to have the authority to sign the contract to enter into the agreement with you. So if it's an estate manager or a property management company, make sure they're the ones that have the authority to sign the contract and that you're not just getting a signature from someone who is acting like they have responsibility or acting like they have authority, but maybe they're not the ones that are actually the person who needs to sign it. So if you have a signed agreement, make sure that person has the legal ability and responsibility to sign that contract. So contracts are like the backbones of business, right? They provide two things. They provide protection and enforceability, right? They give you clear expectations, right? That's that protection. And they specify who's doing what, right? That gives that enforceability piece of it. So the biggest issues that contracts have is that they're ambiguous, right? There's unclear terms, they lead to disputes. We're going to cut bi-monthly. Does that mean we're cutting twice a month or every other month, right? But there's ambiguous language that happens in contracts, and that's where people get into trouble, right? Or they failure, or there's a failure to specify some details, right? Again, there's some vague language that creates confusion inside of contracts. We will perform on snow events when there's up to two inches in snow on the ground. Does that mean it's falling on the ground? What happens if there's more than two inches, right? You could write a book about all the things that we have in our contracts, right? That if somebody really went through and were to pick at, they could probably find some things that are vague, right? That are unclear. There's usually a lack of some sort of written documentation, right? An oral agreement, while it may be fine, while it may be legal, it really doesn't help you once it gets into he said, she said about what you said you were going to do or not going to do, right? So those are the common pitfalls that we have, that ambiguous language, that failure to specify details, that lack of specificity in writing. How do we remedy those? We do the inverse, right? We write with clear language, right? We cover details in contracts. We make sure there's some sort of review of that and a signature, right? So again, people sometimes think, oh, contracts are great when they're confusing and have fine print and legalese. And I want my client and customer to know that I've got every aspect covered from a legal perspective. That's great. And I want you to have that. But don't forget that it should be able to be read by somebody at an eighth grade reading level and be able to understand what services are going to be performed, how they're going to know if they're done, how we're going to accept payment, what happens if I want to cancel as the provider, and what happens if the customer wants to cancel, right? All that should be clear and present as part of a contract. People are always curious about how is my client going to get out of this? How is my customer going to get out of this? As a reminder for a contract, you want to have your own way out of it as well. So have that exit, have that termination language very clear in contracts to help protect yourself as well. But with contracts, right, it's pretty basic. We want to use clear and simple language where it leaves no question about what we're doing, when we're doing it, how we're getting paid, and how we are getting out of that contract. Another big thing that we enter into contracts with, again, not only with customers, but are with our team members, right? Do we have employment agreements? Do we know what happens when an employee leaves or is terminated? Is that language clear? Is that language in a way that someone can understand it if there's a language barrier or some sort of 
lack of education or even illiteracy on behalf of our of our team members, right? That can happen. We want to be in a position where we can help them understand what they're agreeing to as being part of a team member here. Now, I'll share another quick story about some things that I've seen recently in the industry that it's unfortunate, but sometimes there's sexual harassment or there's hate speech or there's discrimination in a workplace, right? It happens, right? We do our best to avoid it. We train on it. We treat, we treat our team members with care and respect, but it doesn't mean that every once in a while we don't have bad actors in our company who either harass or discriminate against other members of our team, right? It's a sad thing and a hard thing to go through. Companies typically have an HR professional or somebody in administration that helps place those claims. However, unfortunately, I've seen it in clients where it's possible that HR or professional is the one maybe harassing, is the one maybe discriminating. So now you've got to go to the person who's harassing or discriminating and file a formal complaint. Well, that's not going to go well, right, as we all know. So what I've seen as more of a modern trend for companies is that they now have a hotline where if you're sexually harassed or discriminated against, there's a hotline that the employee can call that's bilingual, that they can file a formal complaint against a team member, and that complaint gets routed to two members within the office that can go handle that complaint. That allows for team members to feel like they can open honestly and transparently, go tell someone about the real problems that they're facing at work, and it also allows them to speak to a third party who can document and showcase that that complaint was filed. So again, at the end of the day, we're here to protect our team, right? So we want to give them the tools where if they're being harassed or discriminated against, they can handle that in the proper channel and ultimately save us as a company the problem of not having the proper reporting channels within our company. All of these things being said, these are tough things to deal with. As you all know on this listening to this, we want to sell work, we want to do work, we want to bill our work, and we want to collect the money, right? As Marty often jokes, that's how you run a company, right? You got to sell the work, do the work, build the work, collect the work. These legal problems, these legal challenges are just bumps on a wheel as part of those processes. So anything that we can do from a system perspective to keep those wheels moving forward will put us in a good place. So as you go into your next hiring season, your next onboarding, your next training of your team, talk to your insurance company. That's usually who can provide this. Ask them about a employee hotline for them to call in, whether it's a formal complaint about safety or a formal complaint about sexual harassment or discrimination. That is long-term a better protection for your company. Another thing on the employee side that we see often is this non-compete that, that companies are, are binding employees to. And there's a lot of reasons why we'd want to bind employees to non-competes, right? We're investing in training them. We're investing in growing them. We're investing in showing them our systems and processes. We don't want them to go work for our competitor next door, right? So the non-compete has been a classic way that you do that. Every state handles non-competes differently. But in the basics, the non-compete is a restriction of a location where somebody can work. It's a restriction of the time between when they leave a job and when they can work in that same field. And it's a restriction of the scope of the kind of work that they do. Okay, so let me break that down for you again. A, a non-compete at its essential bare bones is three things. Non-compete of location, non-compete of your time, and non-compete of the scope of the restriction in which you were working. So for example, let's say you worked in Dallas, Texas, right? That could be the location of the area restricted. Now, Dallas, Texas is a big city. So are you working on the east half of Dallas, the west half, the north, the south? Where are you working in Dallas? 
that may change the location of where you could restrict somebody to work in Dallas if you worked for a Dallas company. So that's location. Time. The amount of time that you and an employee agree in their non-compete language that they cannot go work in this market, in this area, doing the same type of services, right? It may be a year, it may be two years, but you sign a non-compete, you leave this company, you are you are barred from working for in this industry doing this thing for one to two years, right? Depending on what it is. That's the time half of it. And then the scope of the restriction. Let's say that you're a maintenance salesperson. The scope would mean you can't go work for another company in Dallas selling maintenance work, for example. It doesn't mean you couldn't sell construction work. It doesn't mean you couldn't work at a company in a different capacity. But the scope might say you can't sell maintenance work. Now, again, as I'm saying all these things, most of you are probably listening, saying, how are these enforced? It's really hard to enforce them, right? Most states are right-to-work states. They want people to work. They don't want to get in between people and their paycheck. And non-competes are getting tougher and tougher to enforce. It doesn't mean you can't have them to protect yourself, but it's good to be realistic about the fact that they're getting harder and harder to enforce. There's even been some talk in the Department of Labor of eliminating non-competes for people that make under a certain number of dollars a year. And it's a high dollar. It's a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. They want people to work. They want people to bargain for their labor. And again, whether you like it or not, we have to play by the rules that we're given. So non-competes are tough to enforce. And we're seeing other companies, again, move to this more of a non-solicitation confidentiality agreement. That would basically mean, hey, we're not going to stop you from working, but you can't go call on all of our clients that we've, we've introduced you to, and you can't hire and take our team away. Again, on a scope, on a restricted basis of time. So the non-solicitation is a little more narrow. It's basically saying, hey, you can continue to work in the industry. You can go do what you want to do. We don't own you, but you are going to assign an agreement that says you're not going to take our clients and you're not going to take our team for a certain amount of time, right? So we get that question a lot. And again, I think a non-solicitation is, a, is another modern option to the non-compete that helps people understand what their abilities are to work if they want to leave your company. So again, that's on the contract side with clients, on the contract side with team. One more thing I want to talk about here before I wrap up is that owners and leaders of companies, right? You are ultimately where the buck stops legally. So even though we're training, even though we're documenting training, even though we're doing all the things that we should be doing, you're the one who owns the company. You're the one listed as an officer of the organization you're the one who's ultimately going to be held responsible for things that go wrong legally at your company. People that you come in contact with, with an injury, are going to see you as dollar signs. They're going to see opportunity. I don't want to sue your foreman. I don't know how much money your foreman has. I want to sue the business owner who I know has assets and trucks and equipment and a company that if I want to try to get money from, I can. Now, we live in a litigious society. We live in a world where people think that way. But it's a good reminder that if you don't care about these legal challenges, then your team is not going to care about them. And if you don't talk about them, no one's going to know about them. And it's unfortunate, but I've seen on more than one occasion, companies not only just lose money as a result of these lawsuits and infractions, it's a massive distraction to running and growing a company. So in some final words, I've got some like rapid fire checklist things that I make sure that I want to hit with you so that we can end here on a good note and you can have some good action items. But for my legal checklist, for my bare bones, whether you're doing a good job, a bad job, you have some legal uh, framework in your company or you have none, I'm gonna hit some things very quickly 
to give you some action items as a result. So number one, institute a company handbook, right? Give a company handbook, it has to be signed by all team members. It properly lays out what the expectations of the company are, how all team members have to operate and behave, PTO, time away from work, right? Sick days, vacation days, benefits, 401k, uniform, what time we work, what time of day is, all those things that happen as a company operates need to be in a company handbook that is updated on an annual basis that teams sign and agree to. Number two, formalize your training program, sign in sheets, right? Having a tool like Greenius is helpful. It does cover some of that in terms of making sure people have signed off and done the things they need to do. We've documented the training. That may not save us, but it may put us in a good light with the OSHAs of the world if they know that, hey, we're at least trying to do the right thing. We have a training program. We're trying to talk to our team about the things that matter most. Number three, you've got to document issues with employees, right? If something happens with an employee, whether they're late or there's an infraction or there's a problem, we want to document it, put it in their file and move on. So if anything happens, if there's ever any legal action, if anything ever comes back, we at least have a history and we show that we're a company that has enough systems and process to document when things don't go well. Companies should be doing some pre-employment screening, whether it's background check or vehicular check. Some companies do a drug test, some, company, some companies choose to leave out THC, others don't. But some pre-employment screening just helps your company be a safer company to work at. And again, that would typically include a background check, a vehicle check, and possibly some sort of a drug test, depending on what your company wants to do with it. You have to have the DOL posters visible, right? Where team members clock in or where they congregate that shows them their rights. Again, that's a checkbox is what I would call it. Get those DOL posters up. Make sure you're in wage and hour compliance. Most people are pretty good with this. The only places that I see companies run into it would be with H2B prevailing wage, ensuring that we have that nailed down, we're in compliance, we filed our paperwork properly, that we're properly handling overtime, and that anyone who is non-exempt from overtime is getting the overtime that they need. And that if we have subcontractors working for us, they're true subcontractors, not team members that we have 1099, right? The DOL is cracking down on that more and more. The workplace reporting hotline I've already mentioned. The damage and accident reporting, I think is safe for all companies. Whenever there is a, a piece of equipment or a vehicle damaged at your company, you need to document it, you need to file it. It can go in an employee file and a company file we have to document all of the damage that happens with our crews. And finally, my last bit is I want to remind everyone that we want a culture of no retaliation. Retaliation is a word in the legal community that means somebody brought up something about the way that we're operating. Maybe we're unsafe. Maybe there's harassment. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe they're accusing their employer of stealing. Who knows? And that person is fired or penalized because they brought an issue of legal substance to the company. And that would mean that they were retaliated against. Retaliation is a slam dunk case for any team member who thinks we're not operating safely. I brought this up and then I got fired because I didn't keep my mouth shut about the fact that we were not operating safely. That would be a culture of retaliation, meaning we are retaliating against employees who have brought up issues at our company of legal consequence. And I'm telling everybody through experience, retaliation is the easiest case for, for a, an employee to bring and win every single time. So we want a culture of no retaliation. If somebody brings up a safety complaint, we have to address it. If somebody brings up a discrimination complaint, we have to address it. If somebody brings up a sexual harassment claim, we have to address it. So 
That's my legal checklist. That will be in the show notes. We'll make sure that you've got that there. I know the law can sometimes be a non-interesting or a little bit of a boring topic, but I hope today I've at least illuminated the fact that you have to take this seriously. It can be a bump on the wheel. We want you focused on selling work, doing work, billing work, collecting work, right? And turning that wheel as fast as you can, not on legal issues that come up with companies that grow. So I hope in a small way we've helped you this week on The Grow Show powered by Steel. And we will talk to you next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Grow Show. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and head to growgroupinc.com for more information and resources to grow your landscaping business. A special thanks to the folks at Steel, whose support makes this podcast possible and whose reliable handheld power equipment makes our drives easier daily. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.